Welcome to the second season of the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. I'm your host, Mark Gleason, a plant pathologist at Iowa State University. I'm also the leader of a USDA-funded research and outreach project that's looking for more efficient and lower-cost ways to protect apples against diseases and insect pests. The project includes scientists, students, and growers in Iowa and Ohio. <laughs> well, our guest uh, today on the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series is Dr. Kara Cox, who is a plant pathology professor and extension pathologist at Cornell University. Um, Carrick, um, appreciate your taking the time to do this. Um, could you just kind of let listeners know uh, how you got to where you are professionally and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess what I do now is I do uh, applied uh, fruit disease management, and that would include all fruits except for grapes, and I do extension, and I do teaching. And most of my extension is on apples and small fruit and on grape. And my research focuses on applied disease management, um, implementing disease forecasting systems, which might be the topic of today's um, podcast, and a lot of work on antimicrobial resistance, whether or not it's uh, bacteria or fungi and looking at grower practices. Now, how did I get my start? I uh, came from a small uh, liberal arts uh, university, and one of the things they had connections to was the Centers for Disease Controls in Atlanta. And I started out by actually doing a couple internships in the special pathogens branch working on Ebola virus. Wow. And I got really interested in viruses. And from that point on, I got a little bit interested in plant viruses, particularly from the standpoint uh, I was really interested in transgenic plants and genetic engineering. And there's a lot of work Ooh. going on in tobacco. Mm -hmm. And that led me to UGA. And from that point, I. Um, you know, I ended up eventually leaving the virology program because I got really interested in fungi. Mm -hmm. And I worked with a couple programs there on uh, small fruit, uh, Harold Sherm's program. Right. It was fantastic. Um, the work was excellent. It had really uh, good translational impacts on the growers. I got real excited. I had a lot of really wonderful projects on blueberry and peaches. And then I went to Guido Schnabel's lab over at Clemson to do a, po po a postdoc out of podcast. And um, in that particular place, I did some teaching of mycology, and I finally got to do some transgenic plant work for um, oh, armillaria um, oh. resistance and um, using some um, transgenic type approaches there. That was a lot of fun. And then from that point on, two fruit pathology labs with heavy extension appointments allowed me to get into my position at Cornell, which was a tree and small fruit pathology, non-grape. And from that point on, I did a, did a and still do a ton of extension. And at some point, I got involved and was charged with teaching introductory plant pathology. And so ah. I get to use both of my uh, grassroots research, my extension outlook, and um, and sort of my research all integrated on um, getting to show students how to do real world impacts of their plant pathology. And so that's kind of where I am today. Well, thanks, Garrick. That wraps it up nicely. That's a must yeah. be a huge benefit to your students to have somebody in there teaching from that broad, a real world, you know, perspective and him interacting with growers as much as you have. And, you know, the target audience for this podcast series is apple growers primarily. So, Good. Um, you know, the, the angle that that I, I wanted to talk to you about today was um, was Niwa 
which is very familiar mm -hmm. to some of your apple growers, not so familiar as you go farther west through the Midwest. Yep. Um, um, maybe you could just tell us a bit about what it is, what Niwa is. Yeah, okay, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it. It's um, formally, it's known as the Network for Environment and Weather Applications. When I first got started, it had a, a different name, but there was some, uh, um, I guess there's some conflicts over IP and the name had to change over a little bit of time, oh. but that's what it is. It is a, a decision aid support system, not only for apples, but for a variety of different crops, ranging from grapes to cucurbits to even some field crops. And there's information on thinning models and insect models and a whole pantheon of, uh, of different, um, different services. Yep, for growers. And it's this huge decision aid support system that's connected with automated weather data throughout New York and is extending a little bit towards the Midwest, but mostly on the East Coast, as you mentioned. Yeah, I, I know I, from talking to colleagues in Massachusetts, they rely heavily and I think get right up into Maine. I don't, doesn't Ewa go that far? Mm -hmm. I think it yep. and... Yeah, it goes even as far as south as North Carolina wow. as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in the Midwest, um, it seems to be a, 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 a mixed picture in the sense that uh, um, our collaborator, Melanie Ivy, uh, um, indicated that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's commonly used and, and increasingly commonly used by Ohio growers. Uh, not as common in Iowa, but, but, um, but uh, apple growers are beginning to use it here too. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so what, what, do you what value do you think that obviously it must have a, perceived value by growers. What value do you yep. think growers are getting out of this? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the the value that they're getting out of it is they're getting the uh, the data on degree days and they're getting the data on the pests and diseases that allow them to better plan and um, manage their spray schedules for the most part. I think you you get a lot of different things when you can really accurately and um, and very closely time the applications of your various fungicides, insecticides, or even um, you know thinning uh, materials to the the most critical points and times for either the pathogen or the tree or the host phenology, um, I think that's what they're 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 getting a lot out of it. And it's been fairly big over the years, particularly with diseases like fire blight, where you really need that very precise timing at bloom, and you know you need to put something out because it's flowering, but you don't know exactly when. And since it requires usually a specialized spray off of the regular schedule, um, I think the growers uh, really rely heavily on that. And they've been doing that for quite some time, at least in the New York area and um, Michigan and some of the other states. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you know, sometimes when growers are new to a system that uses yep. remote weather data like NIWA does yep. or a network, um, you know, have qualms about using data that yep. they didn't see measured on their own farm. Um, yep. You want to you comment on that? I assume that the credibility yeah, of that data I mean, keeps going up um, and up. So what, what it typically happens if you're one of the more progressive growers, you can have a newer weather station installed at your farm or even in separate blocks, depending on if you want to um, um, expend a little cash. I think they range somewhere between you know, 1500 to 2500 bucks, you can contact the newer coordinator and they can help you get set up and show you exactly what you need to get and how to get plugged in to it. And so let's say you have said weather station. Um, you don't really need to rely on the satellite or regional weather data at that particular point. 
But the really nice thing that happens, let's just say you have a rampaging horde of deer that come through and trash it. <laughs> the newest system is so um, agile that what it will do is if your weather station goes down, it will then filter in the automated uh, um, okay. sort of gridded weather data from NOAA as well so that you don't really miss a beat. It may not be as perfect, but you don't miss um, too much of a beat. And we've done some studies recently that we've published in plant disease looking at this stuff where we put the sensors in different parts of the canopies or in different styles. And so uh, I think the the better you can deploy your weather station, the, the more accurate of the data that you'll end up getting. And it, you know, might even surprise you because sometimes what you find inside the tree or inside a tree that is super spindle or high density versus inside a vertical axis tree versus ver versus inside one of these really big bushy trees um, can really change a lot from what you're perceiving the weather data to actually be. And so um, <laughs> yeah, deployment you're, you're can right. be important and, and it's very agile. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, bringing back memories for me because, you know, we did some studies on uh, things like the, the, the duration of wet periods inside an apple canopy some years ago and we these are like m7 trees you know pretty substantial mm -hmm, trees mm -hmm. and uh it's a whole different world in there and so yep. you know the um i i guess what we concluded was there's a lot of different weather environments in a single orchard a single apple orchard and yep. um and what you're really after is some kind of approximate measurements of what's going on there yep. rather than what's going on uh, from this leaf to that leaf Yep. Yeah, and that's a that's a really good point, Mark. One of the things I'm beginning to wonder now is that um, it becomes more and more popular to buy or purchase or find the um, weather forecasting system that's extremely detailed. But as now, as you've alluded to, there's so much variability in the environment, in the orchards that um, does that sort of detail that you might be paying extra for or detailed information about the biology of the pathogens that's provided with some, does that really afford you anything when you've got this much difference between a canopy or a low spot? Or are you just looking for the best day of the week in order to get the best um, bang for your fungicide spray? And I, I think that's what um, the simpler the model might get you to that information more quickly. And then it may be that the, the really fine nuts and bolts of how many bacteria have actually multiplied on the stigmatic surface or how many ascospores are germinating at this exact moment could get lost in those very things that you mentioned. And so I think the simpler and the more automated shooting to your smartphone is probably what we need to think about now. Yeah, and there's a cost savings there, right? And, and, and also the issue mm -hmm. of maybe I don't have to rely entirely, as you pointed out, on my own uh, weather. And, and, yeah. and uh, I don't know if you'd agree, Carrick, but it's my perception that some of these warning systems are pretty robust. I mean, there's conservatism built into them. Yep, yep, there are. And I think where it becomes the most tricky is particularly with the fungal diseases, as you're well aware, Evan, well versed with, is that the fungal disease models require leaf wetness. And as you've been involved in many leaf wetness groups, and um, that's the trickiest thing to forecast. And um, I think one of the things when evaluating a forecasting system is um, how much credence does it give to forecast leaf wetness and forecast rain? Um, when we built the NUA system, the meteorologist says, you know, forecasting uh, precipitation weather and leaf wetness is really tricky. And at best, you have a marginal um, ability to forecast it one to two days out. And so when we started building some of the tools in NUA, we said, OK, it's going to be a leaf forecast. We're only going to we're going to put heavier weight on the forecasts 
that are one to two days out, and we're going to put less emphasis and weight on the ones that are three to five. But not all ser services do that, and what will end up happening is there becomes a lot of like concern. A grower might call me and say, oh my gosh, it's showing you the end of the days. Um, seven days out. I'm like, come on, you know, you, you could just watch the snowfall. When has the ever been absolutely perfect seven days out? But I mean, it can be kind of jarring at the same time. And it can kind of lead to a culture of fear. Um, yep. And it ca could cause growers to react um, um, more aggressively than they need to and not time the fungicide applications as best they could. And so I think that's the forecasting of wetness becomes one of the critical components. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a reason that meteorologists tend to be humble people because they recognize that they're working yep. with a complex, interactive, multi-interactive system that, that um, despite their enormous computer models, uh, is still tricky when you get, as you say, the farther away you get in time. Mm -hmm. A forecast is great because you don't have to sit in your shed and watch it rain while you should have been out spraying. But um, yeah, exactly. but, but it's yeah. all it's all. Um, uh, um, relative in the sense that the the, the longer forecasts mean uh, you know it's like a little bit like crossing your fingers you yep know. it is yeah it can be but one of the nice things that that i usually will tell growers when i do trainings and we now do some of the same training exercises for growers that i do in my classroom where you get to play with scenarios and sometimes when you see there's like five days forecast of rain then I'll say something, okay, when you see a big block like that, you know it's going to rain some. <laughs> Probably <laughs> yep. enough for something like Apple Scab to do the job. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you know that even if there's some play in the forecast, it probably won't go from five days of forecasted rain to zero. Um, usually we, we'll see a little bit, and then in that case, that's that's the time to gamble, or that's the time to use the heavy hitters is sort of how we, we talk about it in class, and we'll talk about it in some of the grower trainings as well. Yeah, that, that if you're a fungal spore sitting on a leaf, whether you get an yep. inch of rain or, or, or 1 25th of an inch of rain may not make yep. that much difference because uh, exactly. you're, you're, yeah. you're little and that raindrop is bigger than you are. So. Yep. You're listening to the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. I'm your host, Mark Gleason. Our three-year project is searching for more profitable and less wasteful ways to control diseases and pests on apples. Now, back to our interview. Um, well, you know, I haven't worked a lot with networks other than like the, um, oh, you know, the old Joe Russo system and so forth, but yep. Niwa, Niwa has matured a lot and, you know, in an impressive way to yep. me. Um, do, you, do you feel like the quality of the data is getting better because you have more stations or I know quality control is always a mm -hmm. preoccupation. Yep, um, I, I think it is getting better. I think because of the, the more weather stations and I think growers are seeing that the fact if they have a weather station plugged into this, the quality of their predictions is getting better. That being said, even if I go to like I look at the Cornell Orchards um, uh, weather station and I look at the Lansing Airport um, stations or the airport station in Ithaca at um, Cornell, I, you know, I don't I think there's enough noise in the system and there's enough conservatism built in that you don't get too different of um, you know, I guess would say actionable um, thresholds in terms of making a, a choice. I mean, I think you do get a little bit better. And and if you have a different microclimate, there can be differences. But for a lot of the times, when a small region is uh, predicted to have a problem, it um, all of them will be in kind of consensus. Hmm. What is nice is if you do have both, you can troubleshoot problems either with your 
weather station by checking some of the surrounding stations. And that's one of the things that we've done. But I think the weather data in general has just gotten a lot better from what it was. So weather stations are more reliable. And I don't know if the sensors are that much improved, but I, I feel like they're more aligned with what other predictors are, um, are, are outputting as well. It's not that the airport weather station says something drastically off from the um, grower farm anymore. They both have picked up rain, which is uh, generally a good thing. And as you pointed out, uh, Kirk, there, you know, if, if some station goes wild and it starts saying it's 75 degrees centigrade out there, which would be a fire pretty yep. much, um, yep. it's, it's going to reject that data probably because it's out of a normal range and just fill yeah, in. So, I don't so that's know. If, thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. I don't know if it will auto reject it, but if it gets oh. just if the data goes missing, it will fill it in. But that's uh -huh. a good point. Usually we will get calls and saying like, hey, wait a minute, look at this it's predicting this thing and um and then we'll go back and we'll trace the source and and sometimes it seems that a lot of the cloud services like it turns out in the end that all rainwise data comes from amazon cloud services and they're having oh. a problem and you can just sort of trace the um uh. the data stream problems back to the beginning and then uh. then um yeah it just really depends on where they come from and where you grab the stuff and um I see. Yeah, so, and sometimes so, so you can go pretty deep into the the thing, and we found a couple problems last summer, um, but then you can find them with corrections by looking at other stuff nearby. And I think this becomes the biggest problem is unreliability of the weather data. Uh huh. And and is is that something where machine learning can have a role? I mean, you always hear a lot of talk about machine learning, and yeah. you know, machines make you you know the system smarter. Is is that something that's really been applied here yet? Not yet, but I think that might be one of the next steps. One of the first things that we've done now with NUA is that you can have your own personalized protocols for um, your weather stations when you log in. I don't do it because I'm teaching. And then, of course, mm. if I were to log in, I'll always show me Geneva or something. But then you get kind of a nice little dashboard. And I think the next step probably is in sending you alerts to your phone when problems are predicted for your weather stations. But I think in the future, I think that would be good if, for example, we could apply machine learning to find something that's um, typically out of range. You know, there's a whole historical set of data in there in NUA that it will grab from to predict things like green tip if you don't put in a green tip date as well. And I think in that particular instance, it would be interesting if you could have an algorithm running in the background to identify things that were uh, terribly out of range, if you will. And I, I think that might be one of the, the future steps. Um, What's in the future for newer now is doing API so that people can take their newer data and run it through another system all entirely. Oh. And a lot of growers like to look at two or three different systems um, mm -hmm. as well. Just like I like to look at two or three different weather apps when determining whether or not how much it's going to snow. Oh. Okay. And so what you're talking about then is taking that raw weather data before it comes spitting out as, as, yep. as grower advice and, and plugging it into another advisory service. Yeah, something that would just say like, okay, um, is it really 75 degrees outside? It's February 2nd in New York. <laughs> right. Historically, that is like, you know, seven standard deviations away from the media historical average for that day. I mean, it could be with um, with global warming. And, and then sure. I think that's one of the next challenges of all these things. And we can talk about that at some point later. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and, and so... Uh, do you find that uh, it's tough to get the growers who own the stations to do anything about maintenance or is it even their uh, responsibility? 
I think it is a little bit their responsibility to make sure it's plugged in and, and destroyed. There's oh. no team that goes around and maintains them anymore. No. There used to be a person who did that, and it became too uh, cumbersome for the individual as the number of stations got larger and larger. Um, I, what I think they can do is they do have support through the Rainwise or whatever systems network. I believe it's Rainwise now in many instances, mm-hmm. or it could be Onset. And maybe I think it's Onset stations now. Okay. Um, they do have support through there for their weather stations through some of the subscriptions and the um, equipment that they've purchased. But for the most part, they do need to make sure it's in, in good placement and up and going. I mean, you could lose a lot of money in fungicide applications just by just just setting the weather station anywhere or, you know, letting it mm-hmm. fall apart. Yes. Um, and I think they've come to realize the importance of um, maintenance and upkeep of their weather station and making sure it's in, it's in good form because at some level, the uh, harvest of your crop depends on it, particularly if you use it for thinning insects and diseases. Yeah. Yeah. Thinning being so critical. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what kind of metrics Niwa uses or or people have gone in and looked, but wh- wh- where do they where does Niwa see the heaviest use? What kind of warning systems or degree day systems get the heaviest? Oh uh, goodness, use? is that something they can yeah, track? Yeah, I think so. But um, judging from what is so, and one of the other metrics that I've noticed is what gets talks at um, meetings. Um, mm-hmm. Carbohydrate thinning model probably gets huge stuff. The degree day calculator. I've seen some metrics in the past. Julia Carroll definitely would have all this information at her fingertips. And of course, Dan Olmstead. But carbohydrate thinning model, the two disease models get a lot of traction based on the sheer number of help desk comments mm. that come in as carbohydrate thinning models, another really huge one. And the insect models are a little less complex because they're almost mm. always based on heat only. Sure. So there's um, the almost sort of run themselves and people seem to be in in good form of those but i would say the biggest tr- biggest tractions are degree day calculators for various degree days to looking at bud break or different phenological stages and uh, carbohydrate thinning model and um i'd probably say the apple scab and fire blight models get a get a lot of traction um it's particularly in from april to uh through july okay there's a, especially from april through june there's a lot of um um you know query and use and traffic on those particular ones mm-hmm, mm-hmm, interesting so, so if, you, if you're using the niwa to help you time your apple scab sprays could you yep. just dive into that a little more detail yeah sure um i'm gonna bring up one of my pictures that we talk about in class like it sort of help guide us to it yeah i mean it has um i mean one of the things that's interesting about it and uh the models in order to be in this newest system, you need to have a published um, logic for it to be included. That's one of the rules of it's run through New York State IPM and the Climate Center and a couple other places. And it needs to have a basis in published literature. And so one of the things that will end up happening is um, what it uses is it uses a lot of the historical papers from the 80s and 90s to sort of make predictions about how many ascospores are ejecting and uh, when infection events occur. And one of the things that's become quite interesting over the years, as as you mentioned earlier, it could just be a 25th of an inch of rain and it will call an infection period. But um, one of the areas of research that we're getting into now is is looking at all these things. It's gonna spit out, um, it spits out two days in advance. I mean, two days that you're currently experiencing and five days in advance with more weight 
um, coming up. And so one of the things that we tell growers to look at now is like, okay, it could predict a lot of different infection periods based on how many um, rain events, whether or not they're contiguous, whether or not there are certain conditions occurring at night versus the day, because that's all built into there as well. And it might predict a lot, but right now what we're trying to do is educate growers to pick the best possible times to use their best materials um, to sort of manage the apple scab. And so that's some of the stuff we talk about in class. Cool. We have a couple of rules of, of thumb, one of which that we published in a study in plant disease um, recently this year, looking at, well, how many ascospores need to be flying in the air before I put out my heavy hitters versus whether I could do something like maybe even a biological to talk crazy for a minute wow. instead of using Mancozab and Captan. When can you put out a biological? When can you put out, um, when should you put out one of the single site really hard hitting fungicides? And so we're starting right now to get a feel for like, okay, a lot of infections are predicted because it rains a lot. Which ones do you really need to worry about and how much ascospore release or how much, how many hours of leaf wetness make for the best time to apply the best time in the future to apply your materials. And now what we're starting to do is we're doing a lot of trials. We're really check these things out and spray according to these sort of additional rules of thumb. We know what is required for infection. And the same would be the case for fire blight. There are different levels of um, fire blight. And sometimes George Sundin and I, my colleague at Michigan will say, okay, if it hits this threshold, you could probably use oxytetracycling or cycling or biological. However, if it's gonna predict x you probably need to go to an antibiotic and so um we're just now starting to take those sort of ideas about how to best implement the model and say okay i'm gonna go play sprayer because that's what i do i'll go out and make applications now and i'll make applications at this time and see how much um apple scab was missed or controlled or was anything even lost by more carefully planning our applications because if you don't do that to a certain extent you'll just spray all the time <laughs> But, you know, the original um, literature on, you know, the the criteria for infections doesn't say, well, come back every three days and apply again. It just tells you when the pathogen has infected. But as most apple growers will know, you apply and then you have a period of time by which the material remains on the um, leaves and by word of time you have for protection and it could or could not go away, depending on how much additional rain or how many other spores keep um, blasting off into the system. And so that's sort of what the, some of the directions that we're doing now, and that's sort of how we've been coaching growers to use it, look at different scenarios and discuss when it makes sense to apply again or apply for this forecasted weather or that forecasted weather and what can they get, expect to achieve when doing that. I see, so you guys, if I'm understanding it correctly, you're kind of doing the quality control from the disease biology side not the you know yeah. meteorology side but you're the you're you're the live organism Correct. quality yep. control mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yep uh -huh. have, have you done many surveys of of the niwa clients the apple growers i mean do they yeah do they like I, it do I they complain haven't. okay no um i personally haven't done it but there has been a lot of um um surveys being done um yeah there are there are tons of complaints hmm. and they range from everything to the newer model told me I had in fire blight infection period and I sprayed for that infection period and I didn't get fire blight. And I'm like, well, you should be happy. Um, <laughs> but they're disappointed because they thought they should have seen it anyway. Well, I mean, like the idea, you know, we get stuff like that. And then we get a lot of um, newer missed this infection period that some other service picked up. And usually the simplest service is the one that gets criticized for not having the um, most accuracy. However, it can never be verified. 
unless you do an experiment like at a research farm, like we would have both of them out there and spray against according to two. So we do get a lot of complaints. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the complaints revolve in a change of the interface um, because as it gets better, um, you have to relearn things again. And that can be frustrating. And there's a couple nuances to the whole system. And whether or not the infection period is real um, or whether it's fire blight or apple scab, those are the two most contentious ones. The strawberry disease models that we've built out of stuff like of Larry Madden's rules and mm-hmm. some of the rules of thumb that we use. Uh, there's no contention. People don't get too grumpy over the grapes, even though they're even less detailed than what we've provided for um, apple scab and fire. But I think it just depends on the clientele. Well, I suppose even on that world of apples, you can have ideal weather conditions, but if you don't have the fungus or bacteria present, you're not going to get disease. So it's not a failure in that sense. It's a, it's a warning, but it's, yep. if you don't have the, no, if you don't yeah. have that pathogen present. Yeah. I mean, exactly. That's the other thing too. Um, a lot of times we've got a lot of interest in like, we need to get a mummy berry model. And I'm like, well, if you don't actually have a history of mummy berries and blueberries, <laughs> okay. you really shouldn't be spraying on the mummy berry model schedule. And that's the, you know, growers, like you said, either have a disease or they don't. Now, apple scab and fire blight are pretty prevalent and everyone's kind of worried about them. Mm-hmm. But um, some, like you, you mentioned there, yeah, I, you don't want to start pushing all of those things out because a grower say, oh, goodness, today I got to spray for seven different diseases. I guess I'll go make an application for each one. And you, you don't want them to start thinking uh, in that nature as well. <laughs> which would be kind of tricky. So, so, okay, you mentioned, you know, there's complaints and as there would be with any, you know, fairly revolutionary way to think about uh, being prepared for disease management. Um, So what are the biggest challenges for NIWA? NIWA is, you know, some people perceive it as a success story and and, and has, it's grown, its reach has grown, its its influence has grown. So what are the big challenges? Um, I think the biggest challenge, um, for the most part, um, it's not necessarily inherent thing with newest as much as, um, providing maybe better guidance to help, um, the growers, uh, achieve the agility they need to, um, to manage and, and to act upon, uh, the materials in new, I would say if anything could get better, it would be forecasted and more accurate forecast data of precipitation. And I think that will come oh, with mm-hmm. all the weather services. New itself has, um, I think the next step for that, one of the bigger challenges will be um, personalized SMS messages. So that, you know, I mean, you've seen it before, even on your own app, if you have the weather channel or something else, aside from telling you all the uh, various um, uh, junk and novelty stories, it will tell you, oh, big storm's coming into your area. And you look down at your phone and think, oh, goodness. Um, I think that's the next challenge for NUA is to have those growers get alerts when a problem is predicted in advance instead of needing to like uh sit down and go and look at it every morning i see push it out rather than yep having it push push Uh notifications Uh would be the Uh next step the weather the new app is really responsive and looks great on a smartphone or tablet and uh, a lot of the students in my class when we did the exercise ran it on their phones and um in class to do all of the complex exercises um not wanting to bring a, a laptop and it works really well. I just think you just need those push notifications just to get you thinking. I think that's the next big challenge. And then, you know, finding ways where growers could implement it. The larger the grower you are, the less agile you become and are able to make these changes. If you're managing 500 acres with two sprayers, Uh 
um, you can't just spray it all in two days. It's just, it's just not possible. Yeah. I see. I see. Yeah, your response time is different there. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. And more accurate forecasts, but that will just come generally with with the data that we get improvements in over time. Well, well, thanks a lot, Carrick. This has been real interesting. I've learned a lot actually talking to you about Neon, hopefully growers as well. So I yep. uh, really appreciate your, your insights. Um, we've been talking to Dr. Carrick Cox, professor and extension plant pathologist uh, at uh, Cornell University. I uh, really appreciate your time, Carrick. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to this episode of the second season of the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. You can find more episodes in this series at our website. The link is www.smartapplespray.plantpath.iastate.edu. The host for the series is Mark Gleason. Jose Gonzalez is the editor. The Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series is funded by a grant from USDA's Crop Protection and Pest Management Initiative. For more information about the two-state project, contact either Mark Gleason at mgleason at iastate.edu in Iowa or Melanie Lewis Ivy, ivy.14 at osu.edu in Ohio.